Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers' Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled Love and Other Stories, features authors Trent Dalton, Nigel Featherstone and Hannah Kent in conversation with Alex Absent. Thank you everyone so much for coming this afternoon. I'd like to just acknowledge that we're on unceded Bundjalung land and with that move into our three panellists. I'm Alex Adset, I'm a literary agent based on the Gold Coast so this is practically my local festival. But first on my left we have the amazing Nigel Featherstone. He's the author of the 2019 war novel Bodies of Men and most recently, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing, published this year by Ultimo Press. He is also the author of many short stories published widely around the world. He wrote a libretto for The Weight of Light and is currently working on a play being developed by the Street Theatre. Then we have Hannah Kent, who is the author of the international best-selling and multi-award winning Burial Rights, The Good People and most recently Devotion. Her debut, Burial Rights, was translated into over 30 languages and won, amongst other things, the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year. Both Burial Rights and The Good People have been optioned for film. Hannah is the co-founder of Kill Your Darlings, lives and works on Paramank land in Adelaide. And on the end, we have the amazing Trent Dalton, who is another multi-award winning author and multi-award winning journalist. His critically acclaimed debut, Boy Swallows Universe, is an international bestseller and winner of many, many things, including a record-breaking four Australian Book Industry Awards in 2019. Boy Swallows Universe also became a record-breaking play at the Queensland Theatre Company and is in production for a series with Netflix. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah. It's filming now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <Woo. laughs> This was followed by All Our Shimmering Skies, and his latest book, Love Story, was the number one best-selling work of non-fiction published by an Australian author in 2021. You're the best. <laughs> Bar and Bay, thank you. <laughs> OK, guys, I'm going to start us off <laughs> with if everyone could give us two or three minutes just what the book's about. I'm going to say start with you, Trent. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much, Alex. You know, you're amazing for all you do for writers across Australia. Um, yeah, I wrote a book called Love Stories. It was inspired by this dear friend. Um, my best friend is a man named Greg Kelly, uh, who lives in Brisbane. And his beautiful mum is this cantankerous Irish Catholic woman who we just adored. And, uh, you know, when I was just a sort of budding journo she would send me these beautiful letters written with the help of her best friend her best friend was a 1960s sky blue olivetti typewriter and she would write these letters like trent keep going trent go go further go deeper and she was an incredibly inspiring woman um she passed away on christmas day 2020 in the sort of peak of covid and we went to the funeral and my wife and my younger, uh, my eldest daughter Beth, we were we were in the funeral. I looked behind me and I saw that latecomers could not get into Kelly's funeral. And I was struck with the notion that that's how you live a bloody life, live a life so selfless that latecomers can't find a seat at your funeral. And it was an incredibly moving ceremony. It was one I don't know, if, you know, that phenomenon now of the video montage where you see someone's life from, like, black and white 1950s photos all the way to the 2020s. 
It was incredibly moving. We'd go outside into this place called Albany Creek Memorial Park, if there's any sort of Brisbane folks here. And we're out in the car park. It was baking heat, like January 6, high summer Brisbane. And as per Kath's request, we all had to go out and drink the 36 Forex gold cans that um, <laughs> were left in a fridge when she was rushed to hospital. And we're having those cans and we're toasting Kath and I'm talking to Greg Kelly, my best friend. And I'm like, man, I just want you to know that Kath meant the world to me. Like she really encouraged me to go further. And, you know, it's a big reason that I wrote Boy Swallows Universe because of her and the confidence that someone can do when someone sends you a, a letter like the sort of thing she sent me. And he goes, oh, well, wait till you see this, Trennis. And uh, he calls me Trennis. And then um, he opens up his back door of his Subaru and he pulls out a sky blue 1960s Olivetti typewriter and, and he says, mum wanted you to have it. Yeah, she gave me her best friend and, um, and it was so beautiful and I was so moved and I called up my friend, Kel, about two weeks later and I just said, hey, as soon as this thing's done and because of all the stuff of Boy Swallows Universe and all our Shimmering Skies, all this, it was me, 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 all my stories, I was like, I need to get out and go hear other people's stories again, the stories of strangers and I said, would you mind if I took your mum's typewriter out to the busiest part of Brisbane, the corner of Adelaide and Albert Street, right where you come out of the King George Square sort of bus terminal, and uh, would you mind if I sit there for two months with your mum's typewriter with a sign saying, sentimental writer collecting love stories, do you have one to share? And about 200 people stopped, and they told me their deepest and most beautiful love stories, and I turned it into a book called Love Stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's an honour to be here talking about it. Hannah, can you tell us about devotion? Devotion takes place in Prussia at the beginning in 1836. And on the outside, it's ostensibly about a community of old Lutherans who live in a small village of Kay in Prussia. And these old Lutherans at the time of the book's opening are being persecuted for not joining King Frederick William III's Union Church. They want to stick to their old ways of service. And as a result, they're being increasingly jailed and fined. Their church has been locked. Their services have been forced to go into secret. They meet at midnight in the local forest. And amidst this is a young girl on the cusp of womanhood called Hunna, oh, Hannah, sorry, Nussbaum. She is someone who is the daughter of one of the elders of this church. She's someone who is finding it quite difficult to fit in with her congregation and her community, mainly because she is something of an outsider. She doesn't know what it is to be a woman. She's reluctant to become a woman. She doesn't want to fulfill the social role set aside for her within this congregation, which is to be a, a dutiful wife and mother. And she also is different because she possesses a kind of synesthesia whereby she hears the natural world around her. She can hear sunlight singing, the trees talk to her. And so her relationship with the divine is so much more than what is contained within those single services within the forest. And as a result of these differences, she is also very lonely at the book's opening until another family who are seeking relief from persecution arrive in this village. And they have a young daughter called Taya. And in Taya, she finally meets something of a soulmate, someone who recognises her differences and yet accepts them unconditionally. And amidst the backdrop of this congregation seeking uh, escape from their persecution, seeking emigration, these two girls develop a very deep friendship which over time and the course of a boat journey to the colony of South Australia develops into something much, much more. Nigel, tell us about, you know, 
My heart is a little wild thing. My heart is a little wild thing. Since 2007, I had this idea and I wrote it down in my journal of, of a, a middle-aged guy who's lost and he sees a, a strange animal that leads him to meet someone who will change his life. And I had tried a whole heap of... I don't know whether you guys have had this experience. <laughs> Hopefully it's not just me. But um, I had this... Uh, I'd been working on this manuscript. And I'd work on it, work on it, work on it, and just didn't work. You know, it just felt dead on the page. And then I'd try it again, and I'd think of a different version of this guy called Patrick, you know, this lonely guy. And uh, th- then I thought, yep, yeah, I, I think I've got the manuscript. I'm feeling good about it. It's feeling good. I think it's ready to go to my agent. Sent it off to her. Waited two weeks. You know, I do that sort of thing. You send it off to your agent. I get, and she always says, you know, you've got to be patient. So five seconds later, I'm checking the email. <laughs> and two weeks later, she goes, there's an email that says, Dear Nigel, I think this is one of the worst manuscripts I've oh. ever read. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so th- that was great for my confidence. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Anyway, because I'm a bit of a stubborn bugger, I thought I'm just going to have one more go at this manuscript. I just love this idea of a lonely guy, sees this animal, meets man, changes his life. And between... I live in Goulburn, down on the southern Tablelands, and um, I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and stay in a steading. And some of you might know what that word is. You know, it comes from homestead, but it's actually the barn. And I stayed on in this old barn, a heritage-listed barn, in the middle of the Monero, that incredible plain between the Kosciuszko and the far south coast. And I stayed in this barn, and I was to work on this one more version of the manuscript. I was meant to edit it. And um, I was there just editing away, tinkering, you know, a little, you know, getting stuff right. I think, you know, I think this is right for Gabby. And then um, the, the farmer is actually a very erud- erud- erudite sort of woman, and she has all these books. And um, I just looked up and there was like a Stephen King biography and I thought, I'll just do a little bit of reading of Stephen King, do a bit of editing, a bit more of Stephen King, a bit more editing, (laughs) a lot of Stephen King, (laughs) a little bit of editing and then I just thought, you know, if I was here and my my manuscript was on the shelf and I had Stephen King, I would read Stephen King. (laughs) And... (laughs) So I was just sitting on this barn, like surrounded by nothing. You know, the phone doesn't work, no internet, no banking, no nothing. I was just sitting on the steps of this barn and I thought, just having a glass of wine at the end of the day, and I thought, if there was a man over there planting trees, I would just go up and say, I'm trying to write this fucking novel and it's just not working. Can I just help you plant trees? That would be a better use of my time. (laughs) And then I just thought, from a storytelling point of view, I thought, what if... What if, like, I see an animal who leads me to a man who's planting trees? <laughs> and I literally, the next morning, I got in my car, drove three hours back to Goldman, parked the car, fed the chooks, dressed in my riding outfit, which is Ugg boots, tracksuit pants and a very bad jumper, <laughs> uh, Beanie went into my riding room and wrote this in, by hand, hand on, uh, pen on paper, in 14 days. Wow. Wow. So, so, so that makes him the most successful writer here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think Nigel and Trent, you both actually answered my next question, which was what was the spark that w- made you write this book? So, so I'm going sorry, to. Sorry, Alex. No, no, sorry, this Alex. is fantastic. Uh, so, Hannah, I'm going to put that question to you. What, yeah. what made you, you know, really tell this story 
Oh, you, know, you know, it was probably the confluence of several things. One was I really wanted to write about the Australian landscape. I had been living in Melbourne and I returned home to Paramount Country in the Adelaide Hills where I was raised and I was experiencing the same set of wonderment and awe that I did as a kid growing up in that landscape and I wanted to try and capture it. And the other thing too was I wanted to step away from what I'd done previously, which was, as my friends kind of snidely call it, you know, miserable stories set in bleak places. <laughs> um, and so I, I wanted to write something which was uplifting and I was thinking about the kind of stories that might fit in this landscape that I wanted to tell. And I was thinking about how when I was in Melbourne, no one knew what I said when I, you know, said stuff like Fritz and Metwurst and Schnitzel. And, and I was thinking, basically I was thinking about the massive German-speaking populations which arrived shortly after the colony of South Australia was established. And I thought, well, you know, not many people know about this aspect, certainly of South Australian history. I was interested too in the way in which a persecuted group of people arrived in this newly formed colony to persecute others. I was interested in examining the hypocrisy inherent in that. But also, I was originally interested in writing about friendship between women. Because I had grown up with these narratives of these pious German speakers, but the narratives were always dominated by the male heads of family, the church elders. And I was always curious about the women, because when you did hear about them, they were very much sort of, they were reticent to tell their story. And yet you could see from the way in which people spoke about their great-grandmothers, their great-great-grandmothers, that they had, they possessed very strong relationships amongst themselves. They were a very strong community unto themselves. And I thought, well, friendship, I think, especially between women, can be such, uh, they sometimes they are the most significant relationships in our lives, irrespective of the fact that we might be married and have children. And I thought, maybe I can write a book that celebrates that. And then it was 2017, and we had the same-sex plebiscite. And at the time, I was pregnant with my now wife and my first child, and our letterbox started filling with the worst kind of pamphlets in favour of the no vote. And I was surprised by my the level of the anger that I felt, even knowing, even anticipating this sort of feedback. And it made me really sit back and think about what I was working on. And it started getting me thinking about the value of representation and the power of representation and what I have been given from the stories that I've received in my life. And I started thinking, you know, friendship is not going to cut it here. I need to, can I write a queer love story set against this very religious narrative? And if so, can I do it without making it a narrative of shame? And so that, in the end, became the goal for devotion, was essentially, can I write a queer love story set within an old Lutheran congregation that was all about queer joy and managed to completely bypass a narrative of ostracism or self-reproach or self-hatred or recrimination? So that was basically yeah. it. Brilliant. And I think... You know, if anyone's already read Devotion, you've very much succeeded. It's, you know, a beautiful exploration of that. Nigel, for you, what did you want your book to say about friendship, romantic love, queer love? Like, did, did you set out with something in mind to talk about love? You, you, both of you probably had these little moments in the writing of a novel where something, something happens and... For me, it was actually a wonderful Canberra-based poet called Melinda Smith, who's actually won the Prime Minister's uh, Prize for Poetry. And 
she told me all about this concept of duende, and anyone who's involved in the theatre might know it, D-U-E-N-D-E. And it's, it's all about, um, it comes from Lorca, the gay Spanish poet, and for him it was about, there's, there's the lovely muse, you know, we can talk about going for a walk along the beach and sunrises and checking out dolphins and, you know, it's all very lovely. That's what the, the muse does. But for Lorca, the duende was, is the goblin muse, is the devil muse, is the mischief maker. And, and uh, I'm actually a very cautious sort of person. So what I wanted to do with this, and once Melinda told me about duende, I thought, yeah, you know, I'm not going to write about, you know, going to have walks along the beach and seeing dolphins. You know, for Lorca, duende would be, let's go and talk about shagging dolphins. Like, that's, that's, that's the devil muse going, let's, let's go into really tricky places. And for my previous novel, I've had the same publisher for both, and for this, he actually wrote on the top of my pad, uh, ambition. So I kind of combined ambition with duende. And, you know, it's really interesting hearing you talk about wanting to find queer joy, and that's clearly what you've achieved in devotion. You know, I was born in 1968, and um, so, you know, Mardi Gras, the first Mardi Gras was 10 years later, so I was 10 years old watching the first Mardi Gras and hearing about men and women being arrested. And then I was 15, falling in love with a boy at school, a guy called Peter, and I was absolutely, absolutely head over heels in love with him. But also, you know, what happened in 1983 was, was AIDS. So I did talk about this before, but basically for 10 years I didn't engage in the gay world because I thought I would die. So that sort of stuff, you know, people like David Marr talks a lot about this, that that sort of fear and shame is just stuck in my DNA. So... What I wanted to do, the other thing that happened to me was two and a half years ago, my mother died. She was 85 and she died of dementia. And as soon as she died, I just started to think, there were some things I can hear my mother now going, don't you talk about me. (laughs) 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 Sorry, mum, you're a bookseller. I became a writer. Um, and, And she, look, you know, she loved me dearly. And some of the last things she said, even though she was so buckled from dementia was that she loved me dearly and I still have her one of her last messages on my answering machine at home and I I can't get rid of it but it's true that she didn't want me to be gay Uh, she uh, didn't want me to be a writer in fact she said if you're going to be a writer call yourself something else other than Nigel Gray Featherstone but I thought you gave me that name it's a bloody ripper (laughs) especially for a North Shore boy who was you know went to a private school heavens above you know (laughs) Golden people don't like it. But, um, <laughs> um, and she also said, I think you should move into my street and look after me. And I kind of think it's really weird in the way the mums go, I've got two older brothers, and because I go, mm, older brother's straight, probably won't look after me. Middle brother's straight, probably not gonna, son's not going to look after me. But that funny, you're feminine-looking one. I think he will look after me. <laughs> now, in, in reality, I actually said no to all those things and I went off on my own journey. But what I wanted to do was create, and I guess also post-marriage equality, I had this, obviously I was a huge supporter of, supporter of it, and I felt that it would just send this great wave of love and pride across the country. But I wanted to create a character called Patrick who's actually left behind because mm. he's dedicated to his mum. His primary relationship is with his mum. So I wanted to actually track his life as he sees this animal and meets this man who will break him out of that and um that was that was my mission uh, you know we'll say i don't know what love is but patrick finds love 
I promised I wouldn't ask the question, what is love? But thank <laughs> <Right>. you. <laughs> we leave that to the pop stars. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Trent, in love stories, one of the things I love, you know, there's beautiful story, story after story that is just stunning. But it's not just romantic love. There's, you know, stories of friendship and oh. family love and, you know, beautiful. Yeah. Did that surprise you? When you set out to sit there for two months? Yeah, not at all, because every piece of journalism I've ever done, love often comes from darkness. Like, the wonderful love that, that we all really all treasure, the good story love, which has peaks and troughs and hardness and, you know, it's messy. You know, that's the stuff that I find is the really good love to write about. And it's, it's funny, I, did, I didn't know what I was after, and I'll tell you a moment that happened... And I thought, if I can just go with true love, whatever that form takes, then it'll be an interesting book. And this thing happened. I'm out, so I'm out on that corner, and I'm just sitting there. You're incredibly vulnerable. You're just sitting there with this sign. You look like an idiot. A lot of people thought I was selling solar panelling. <laughs> and uh, some guy, the, you know, really kind of early on, this guy, he was, he was whizzing on something really heavy, and he comes past, and he's, he's all twitchy, and he goes... He reads my sign, he goes... Love, love, I'll give you a fucking love story. How about, how about I bury your head in fucking concrete? Jeez, <laughs> man, this, this is going to be a long two months. <laughs> and then, then this beautiful couple, Graham and Diane, come past. And, and this is early on, early on. And I'm like, what am I doing here? What is love? What, what sort of love am I looking for? And, you know, every time, and it's, I, I learned this from journalism, like, put yourself out there, like, go get close, get closer to humans, hard to hate anyone when you're close to them, and it's, it's just really powerful to just get close and, and be the vulnerable person going, I just want to hear everything you have to say to me, and that was a really great thing, I was like, all right, hang in there, stay at the desk, and then Graham starts telling me about how much he loves his wife, Diane, and Graham's blind, and he's been blind all his life. And Diane's legally blind. And Graham's about late 70s. And, and he says, Trent, for me to convey to you how much I love this woman, you need to go put yourself in a dark room for at least a week and, and think of someone then coming in and opening those doors and wrapping her arms around you. And then I say this thing to Graham. I said, Graham, I'm sorry if this is an awkward question or it's a bit poorly worded, a bit insensitive, but if you had five minutes of sight, you've never had sight. But if you had five minutes of sight, it's one of those awkward journo type douchebag questions, but it was like, if you had sight for five minutes, what would you spend your time looking at? And uh, would, you, would you spend it looking at the Pacific Ocean? Would you spend it looking up at the stars? And he goes, stop, stop, stop. And he's like, that's not a silly question. I've asked myself that question every year of my life, and it's easy. I'd spend it looking at Diane for five minutes. Because I've never seen her face. And I was just incredibly moved. And then I said something equally awkward where I said, you know, just in the moment, and I looked at Diane, and she's getting quite teary, and, like, and she's really beautiful. Like, you, you saw the whole story of their life. And I, I said to Graham, hey, Graham, she's beautiful. Like, she's really beautiful. And, uh, and he goes, I know that. I didn't have to be able to see to know that. Yeah. Yep. And I was like, done, you know, like, done. Like, I, I'm just like, I've got it. I've got the book, you know. And, and what, what I was searching for, Alex, was we all have a museum in us. You know, we all have a rickety wooden museum. It's cobwebbed and the floorboards are, you step on it and they creak. 
and it's the museum of our lives, you know, and, and we keep these boxes, these, these sort of exhibit boxes, and it's like the birth of our children and, and our, our, our first kiss and the time we came third in a 100-metre running race. And what I was trying to get to in people's museums was the back room, and that's where we keep the true meaning of ourselves. And, and, and often on that street, I swear to God, if you sat long enough, they'd let you into the back room. And I was just trying to get to the back of the museum. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. OK, changing tack slightly, something that really came through in all three of your books was this love of place. Like, it's almost a character. And I think, Hannah, starting with you, you talked, you wanted to talk about the Australian landscape, but you also talk about the landscape back in Prussia as well, that they leave. Can I get all three of you to talk about, the, you know, that love of belonging, love of place, what that does to you as a person? Yeah, I mean, it was always, it was front and centre from the very beginning with this, with this manuscript. I knew I just wanted to write about landscape. I mean, I love writing about it anyway. It was there in my other books. I think I'll, it'll always be something that I want to write about it. And I think it's because I find it really challenging. And I like, I enjoy the challenge of trying to distill, you know, just something which is at once kind of ephemeral, but also so big you can't condense it into prose. But I enjoy... I enjoy the difficulty that presents. I, I think, you know, with devotion, I, it started as a, as a, I guess, a means or in a way that I could write about the landscape was to have my central character. And this book's written in, in first person. It's her voice. I wanted to give her this deeper way of communing with the natural world. And so sort of landscape and character ended up developing in tandem. And then so much of her relationship with Taya also becomes about the natural world and about nature because that is what Taya sees and recognises and values in her. And so I think, um, I think, you know, it's interesting you talk about the museum. I love that metaphor. I think instead when I think back about the most significant moments of my lives, it's always about the natural world. It's about, I remember, you know, the way the sky looked on the night that I met my wife. I have these very strong connections, right? And this is part of the way in which we can embed ourselves into the world that we live in, is through our own stories and our own loves and our emotional experiences particularly. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for me to capture that. And I think whether or not, as a reader, you explicitly pick up on it. I think it's something that we all subtly recognise and, and sort of, you know, might bring our own experiences too. Nigel, I think Patrick, your character, the most happy moments in his life are at a place called Jim and Buen. Yeah, um, I, I grew up in Sydney and I spent the first 18 years of my life on, on the North Shore, which was terrible in many ways. But um, And I did make a conscious decision to leave at 18 because I knew this was not going to be a nourishing place for me. But it was great because I spent a lot of time down on the northern beaches. It was either that or the Blue Mountains at a place called Mount Wilson, which was a very, very isolated village. And, and, and I was very happy there. It was it's actually also where Patrick White, um, his mum had a holiday house, and um, it, he was very happy there as well. So me and Patrick, you know. <laughs> I'm channeling Patrick White. The next minute I'll be saying, ban the Mardi Gras. Um, <laughs> But um, I, was, I think, you know, just listening to you, Hannah, I think one of the things, I've, I've never thought about this before, but I think that I love the Blue Mountains, I love the Northern Beaches, and I think because I, I sensed, even as a little boy, maybe Patrick White did as well, that it, it was going to be rocky. You know, find, trying to find someone to fall in love with 
you know, when the church is against you, when the law is against you, when the police is against you, when your family is against you, when your schools are against you, there was no language. This boy, Peter, and I used to have a code. You know, it was a literal P and H, that's Pufter and homosexual, and S was for a very short word. And, um, <laughs> which we couldn't do. And so I think that actually why I was so obsessed with place when I was a kid, because place kind of became my friend and my lover and and I think Patrick in the novel his his parents used to rent this steading back down on the Monero and that's where he was happiest and you know I, I'm sure a lot of novels novelists talk about they don't actually realize what they're doing until they finish the book and for me what I realized is that Patrick as a 45 year old who's caring for his mother needed to rediscover through place through the Monero his boyhood sense of wonder and curiosity that means that he will literally cross a fence, cross a fence and hang out with someone wearing a pink, pink terrier toweling hat. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's what place means, but it's, it does actually mean everything to me. And as a writer, and it, I mean, just, you do it in that opening paragraph. Um, for me, it's, it's, um, I do love evoking place. And you know, when people have been reading the novel say, you know, the Monero is so present, I, you know, people say, I knew it was a car, but I didn't know it was a place. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that, that's one of the things I'm loving the most, that it's so real to people. Brilliant. One thing that really struck me, just quickly, Nigel, in that is that I think what you do so beautifully in your book is having place as a kind of a self, as a, mm. as a past self perhaps, so that by returning to the physical place we can, if only briefly, inhabit that past self mm. and the experiences, the emotional life that we were leading at that time, but like you say, also the wonder. You do it beautifully. Oh, thank yeah. you. In love stories, there are two bits that stand out in terms of place. One is the character, not character, the person of Moana and what she says about place. And also there's an episode where you're driving around in a limousine, I think. Um, oh, you, you, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, they're t two very yeah. important senses of place oh, if you want to pick one or both. No, no, well, they both tie to something I just sort of, it's just sort of come to me and it's from this, um, these amazing panellists I'm sharing here um, that... that Love is such a useful way of remembering place. It's like there's this flippin' house in Brisbane called Five Cram Street Bracken Ridge, and it's my sacred place. And it's the shittiest housing commission shoebox you could ever come across, but it's where my dad raised us boys. And it's like, it's, it, I drive past that place and think of nothing but love, despite some of the things that, a lot of weird, dark stuff that went on there, but it's sort of just this idea, and I'm even just thinking of this place right here, and like, I love my neighbor, her name's Valda, and she's like sitting just over there, <laughs> and I love this guy named Phil Brown, who, he's sitting just at the back there with his beautiful wife, Sandra, like Phil, when I started my first journalism job, taught me a lot of things, and just this idea that you're in a place and you're recognising the love that you have for certain people in that place. And, and Moana, in my book, who becomes the sort of central figure, Moana, it, I'd park my car, I parked it at the bottom of QPAC because it had $15 parking every time, and I had a lot of stuff to lug. So you've got the typewriter, I've got a desk, I've got two chairs, one for me, one for people to sit on on this corner. And so I'd have to lug it all up from QPAC, across the Victoria Bridge, it was just a hike to get there every day. And it was, it was, I, I took it as this real sort of like, you know, work, work, you know, like work. You've got to work for this stuff. And uh, every morning I'd pass this, just this really 
thoughtful woman who uh, was a stop-go stop woman who was doing work there. They were sort of repaving the where you pull into the Queensland Museum car park, right? And she was the stop-go woman. She was ha she'd have a smoko at around sort of 8.30, around the same time I'd arrive. And I just always reminded myself, I'm going to stop and talk to this woman and ask her a love story. And, uh, and you know, a month in, I, I just go, oh, excuse me, you know, she's having a smoke. And she goes, I go, um, uh, my name's Trent Dalton. I'm writing this book called Love Stories. And it's all about just randomly stopping people and asking them their love stories. I was wondering if you had a love story. And she goes, yeah, I can give you a love story in the space it takes to smoke this Winfield Blue. And, uh, and then she proceeded to tell me, she's looking at the Brisbane River and she says... Um, this place saved my life. Um, and, uh, and she's staring out. She goes, I came to this city on January 11, um, 2011, which is in Brisbane, you know that that is the day of the big flood. Like it was just the big flood. Like I covered it and it was just huge. It was chaos in Brisbane. She flew from New Zealand, like escaping some dark stuff. And I landed in this city and I was like, what the hell's going on? And then about four days later, she joined, she didn't know anyone in Brisbane. And she joined the Mud Army, where they sort of, all these people grabbed mops and buckets and started cleaning up Brisbane. She met all of the friends that she now knows in Brisbane um, through complete strangers, cleaning up the city. She found a healing, like, in herself to get over the stuff she was running from, from New Zealand. And it was so beautiful. And then, um, uh, you know, it was just the most amazing sort of journey um, throughout that book Moana has, because... She becomes a central figure because it's her that's really telling me the meaning of place because then she goes, my love story is my love for this place that saved me and this river because it was the river that brought the flood, you know, the thing that we are all terrified of, floods, is the thing that sort of saved her. And, uh, and I go, so um, do you mind if I mention your name in the story? And she goes, you can mention my first name, not my last name. And I said, what's your first name? And she said, it's Moana. And I'm like, I love that name, Moana. My kids love the movie and stuff. And I'm like, what does Moana mean? And she's like, looks out to the frickin' Brisbane River and she says, it means a wide expanse of water. <laughs> it was like amazing. And um, yeah, and then the next sort of sense of place, I mean, far out, Alex, you mentioned the limousine story. I can't resist putting in these stories. So it's this pact you make as a journo where like you spend your life getting the deep, dark stories of people. And so, you know, I have this pact to myself where it's like, if I'm ever telling my story, my wife hates this aspect in me. But if they give me something, I give double back. If you ever want to know anything about me, I'm going to freaking go so deep. Like, you're just going to go, stop. Um, but, uh, you know, so then I go, oh, well, here's, a, you know, yeah, the limous limousine story is just, you know, I got the lamest proposal to my wife of all time because we had a kiss at this particular spot in Newmarket, Brisbane, and it was time for me to propose to my wife. And, uh, and so this limousine pulls up. I've organised this limousine out at this place in Dara that we were living at, and it's all a big surprise. And then, <laughs> and then I'm, I'm like, he's like, where are we going? And we're in the back of this limousine, and maybe she thinks we're going to the Gold Coast or going to Byron Bay or some, somewhere amazing. But in fact, we're just going to this gutter in Newmarket. <laughs> And uh, this, this guy, he's smelling a Bundy rum. He was one of those sort of daytime drinking, sort of wor a working drunk, you know. God bless those working drunks. And, um, and, uh, and he's driving it, and uh, he pulls up in this new market place. And it was just, so, I mean, it's so amazing you mentioned this, Alex, because it is vivid, you know, as, as, as you guys were saying. It's, you remember the key moments through love. And I will never forget, there was a chicken twisties packet in the gutter just there. <laughs> 
Um, the driver hopped out, I swear to God, he had, he had his um, uniform and he had, you know when you know when someone's just doing a half-assed job where they've got the shirt out here and then tucked in here? And he, had, he, had, he had like that and then he got out as I'm hopping out to sort of like, oh, Fee, you know, you know how I've always loved you and stuff. He sparks a durry and he's like, Lee, he's like, swear to God, swear to God, to my right, this lady comes out in a blue nighty, just with a, like a broom, just like... <laughs> watching on this house over there. It was just like, what are you doing? And Fee's cacking herself. Like, she's just like, get up, get up. Like, I'll marry you if you just get the fuck out of this street. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's, she's actually in this, I'm not pointing her out, but I love you so much. Fiona Fransman. <laughs> okay the theme of the whole festival here today is hope you know you know radical hope um so let's talk about love and hope do, do you need to keep hope alive for love to come or is it going to just come and hit you over the head and hijack you anyway you know what do you say to the people who have been broken by love in the past and 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 still find the strength and hope to keep looking. Um, Nigel, do you want to touch on hope with you and your story? Yeah, and hope has been in, in all these discussions this weekend, hasn't it? And look, I, I'm miserable. I'm a miserable... <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a long-term melancholic, you know. <laughs> you know, I grew up listening to The Smiths and The Cure. <laughs> And actually, I, I have a feeling you did too, but check this out. <laughs> See this? <laughs> Just one little change of DNA and you could have been... <laughs> you, the, the, gay, the, gay, the gay Trent Dalton, that's what I want to be. <laughs> but, you know, Trent, play your cards right. <laughs> I'm staying at Elements. <laughs> Just there might be a limo coming to pick you up. <laughs> hey, Trent. <laughs> I'm starting to uh, feel like I should just... Yeah, yeah, sorry, Hannah. <laughs> but, um, oh, look, you know, you know, it's just to trying to tell this story really quickly. In my early 20s, I just knew I had to get my act together. I did try to love a woman and it just didn't work. And then when I was about 27, I just thought this year, my year of, year of adventure and love and... And I, I, on every Friday night, I'd go out drinking with my mates. <laughs> I know, it looks surprising, doesn't it? Um, I'd go drinking with my mates and then secretly I'd go back to my flat, and this is in Canberra, and then I'd ride my bike uh, to, to a nightclub called Hev uh, Heaven. And, oh, I was a terrible flirt. I've come a long way, actually. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I just couldn't do it. I know... I'd, I don't know, yeah, I just, I couldn't do it and I'd ride my Treadley home and feel miserable and then I'd do it the next night and it was all in secret. And um, I did this for about three months and I just thought, oh, God, this is not working. I'm going to this gay nightclub, the only nightclub in Canberra, or no, only gay one. And, um, and I, I kid you not, I, I just thought, I'm going to have one last go at this. And I, I got quite drunk. And, um, and just because I'm a very smart person, I was riding my, my little push bike through the Canberra streets. Has anyone been to Canberra? They're quite dark with no lights. 
And, um, and I was riding my bike and then we had to go through a park and there was a chicane and the next minute, and I just went over the handlebars and just skidded across this, this footpath and just had gravel all on my hands. And uh, because I went to a, a private school, again, looks a bit surprising, and it was an Anglican school, well, they fucked up the gays too, but on this night, on this night, I, I lay in, at, at midnight, I lay on my back at midnight, I looked up the stars, and I literally said, God, if, if this is the right thing to do, you're going to have to give me a sign. And um, she listened. And... And... Um, uh, and I just, at this point, I, d- I thought, look, home is actually further away than heaven. So maybe because the bike is buggered, maybe I just ride, walk the bike with wobbly wheels and all this kind of stuff, hands covered in blood and, and gravel. Just go into heaven, do it one last time. Now, I'm not making any of this up. This is absolutely true. And I walk up, this, park my treadley, just shove it against the wall because it's now buggered and I walk up the steps and I'm on the dance floor you know oh this is great you know, <laughs> flicking off bits of gravel in, <laughs> into the crowd and and look I mean no this is you know this sounds ridiculous but the smoke machine was pumping out and there was just this break in the smoke machine and this man walked out <laughs> And, well, and he was wearing Doc Martens right up to here, tight black jeans, this little tight top with little bits around the side, looked like a, an extra from Depeche Mode, <laughs> and, and this, this little this arm bracelet thing like that, and I went, oh, he's a, he's a bit of all right. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we sort of, sort of got talking, and he said, are you going to be here tomorrow night? And I said, I think so. <laughs> and, <laughs> And uh, so, so we, we met up the, the next night, you know, dancing away by that stage. You know, I'd put Savlon on my... <laughs> oh, that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> oh, I should have thought this through, shouldn't I? <laughs> anyway, so we're dancing and then, look, frankly, we're snogging at the back of the nightclub. And then he, Tim goes, look, awkward question. Your place or mine? And uh, because, you know, I just know what love is, love is in my soul and I'm a romantic chap, I said, uh, yeah, I might just go home by myself. <laughs> and Tim said, how about I give you a lift? And I said, oh, look, I'm up the road. And um, he, so he dropped me off. And on the road up Northbourne Avenue, I just thought, for God's sake, God's sake, Nigel, just do this, just do this. And um, he dropped me off and I was getting out and I went to go up my stairs into my flat and I turned around and said, you, you, you're welcome to come upstairs. And Tim said, you sure? And I said, yes. And we've... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and never saw him again, no. <laughs> then I shagged the city sense that no... The <laughs> No, the, 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 the honest answer to that question is 25 years later, Tim Phillips and I are still together. And I've, I've live-streamed that whole conversation for him. <laughs> and he would go, you're such a suck-up. <laughs>
<laughs> Life story, Hannah, the whole thing. <laughs> was there a chip packet? Was there gravel on your hands? <laughs> oh, my How? God. Um, I mean, gosh, hope I, and I, love. That, that answered the question on love's just going to hijack you. I know, I've completely forgotten the question. Yeah. I was just so enthralled by Nigel's response. Oh, look, I mean, I think my wife would absolutely kill me if I, if I sat up here and told, um, you know, spoke publicly about the way we met. We were such a very... She's a very private person. It's one of the things I love about her. But speaking to love and hope, I think one thing that... Oh, God, you know, it's such big things. These are, the, these are huge, right? People have been talking about this stuff for a very long time. But one of the things that I think love offers is hope. I think that wherever there is love, there is hope. And when I say hope, I don't necessarily mean hope for a romantic relationship. Sometimes it might be receiving love, you can find hope for yourself, hope for change, hope to develop, hope to grow. I think that faith comes into this in a way too, and I'm speaking this in a very, about this in a very secular sense. I think when someone loves you, you know, you could hope for anything and then there is a very strong chance that it, that it will happen. And this has certainly been my personal experience. And this is the one thing that I will say about my wife is that I have never been loved by anyone the way she has loved me. And I have never hoped for greater things as a result of that love. <laughs> this is the best panel ever. How good is this? Giving. Trent, where can you take us? All right, man. I'm going to go so fucking deep now. <laughs> oh, what, the gays can't do deep? <laughs> oh, I'm just like, I'm just going to go with it. And, uh, yeah, no, this is, this is really deep. So this is like, this is total Kona science, actually, by the way. <laughs> no, seriously, if you don't mind, just between us. So, um... No, this is really deep, and it's like in the spirit of what you guys, the how you're talking, and I really want to go like seriously deep. It's so dark, but I'm going to go there anyway. But um, uh, like I get hammered for my radical hope. Like critics fucking hate my radical optimism, you know, and I just want to tell you guys like where that comes from and that it comes from like in my book's called Love Stories, you know, it's like it's such a cheeseball title, but I promise you like it comes from such dark places and I just want to tell you this story, and this is my favourite love story, and it's my favourite hope story. Um, this beautiful mum of mine, like, she's totally in Boy Sweller's universe, and, and uh, she got out of prison. She went to prison for two years, and she got out of prison, and she met, like, this monster. And, uh, and this guy, this guy strangled her and left her for dead at, on a concrete slab in a Telstra phone box... And she was done, man. Like, she was, like, gone, you know. And I swear, I swear, the only thing that kept her going was hope for, not for herself, but for her four sons. And a year later, um, those four sons start to grow. Um, my beautiful older, eldest brother, Joel, gets big enough to fight the monster and uh, the four of us uh, knock on his door and we crash tackle him in the front yard um, and there's a, 
There's a benefit for being four because that's one limb per boy. <laughs> and, and we held this monster down and I was on his left arm, my brother Jesse was on his right arm, my brother Ben was on his left leg and Joel was on his right leg. And we're screaming at mum, go get your things because we're done, this is all ending. And, and I'm crying because I'm the youngest brother and I always cry, I'm the watcher. I'm the sensitive boy, I'm like, I'll cry right now. Um, and I'm just weeping, I can't stop. Um, Mum goes to a domestic violence shelter and the four Dalton boys go back to Bracken Ridge on the train and I'm crying again on the train. And then this freaking beautiful older brother of mine, Joel, starts telling me a joke. <laughs> and I start laughing and then I stop crying. And it's the greatest act of love um, that I've ever seen in my life. And, um, yeah. And I, I, I swear, you know, so I just get very inspired with what you guys are saying. It's like we all have those things that are so deep to us and it's like I write from that place. That is such a hopeful place that Joel had for me. You know, he's like, we won't be lost in this. You know, there's good stuff. Let's just keep laughing. And, you know, yeah. it's, um, that's hope, radical hope. Very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Guys, we've only actually got 10 minutes left, so do we have any questions from the audience? Okay, we ask a question and we'll get them to keep talking. <laughs> I can keep going, is any hands up? Yeah. yeah, thank you, thank you all so much. Trent, can I ask you a question? When you were sitting at your chair and your table, yes. and you were listening yeah. and connecting with the people that you were talking to and yet at the same time recording somewhere up here or somewhere on the page or mm. some what was your actual process for being with the people and then being able to get enough from them to be able to then write about it oh great question i it's a journal thing i always a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of people talk about shorthand and I don't, I don't even believe in it. I, I, I believe in absolutely a recorder, some sort of recording device. And I had a dictaphone beside every... Whilst it was all... And a lot of poetry I was actually writing on the actual Olivetti. Just thoughts about what that moment felt like and, and observations about the birds in the sky and the rhythms of the city all went on the typewriter. Um, but I always say what you should be doing in your notepad, even as a journo, is... What's the tattoo on their shoulder? Like, that's what you should be writing down. Not the, let, let the, the, the words, you know, the quotes be recorded on a... On, you know, let, let that be taken care of. You're too busy talking about the grazers on their knees, you know, and uh, that, that was sort of what I was doing. So that was the process. So typewriter got all that stuff. You know, when she said that story, she actually wept. The recorder's not catching that. Or, um, you know, so that was sort of it. And then... Because listening is at the heart of love. Like, it's like the greatest act we can do. Like, I swear, mate, like so many people stopped and said, um, my children don't want me talking about my late husband anymore. They're tired of it. They can't deal with it. So can I tell you about my late husband? And I'm like, yes, I'm here for two hours and I'll listen to you. You know, and it's like, that's really beautiful, you know. And so it's sort of um, the listening is the most amazing. And you should... Like, I'm a freaking, you should, I'm like, a, I'm a lap dog. Like, I'm like, like, and I'm doing all these non-verbal, like, right, right. Like, you should see me. Like, and it's like, my problem is that I should be doing that more with my wife when I come home. But it's like, 
these people on that corner got such a freaking... I was the best freaking listener you would ever see. <laughs> that's the big power, and that's where the stories come from. you just got to really be in it. It's like you guys. You're an amazing audience, and so we're just going, oh, this is great. I'm going to tell them more. I'm just going to give more. <laughs> we're, we're here for another three hours. Yeah, great. Right. <laughs> another question? There's a hand up over there. I was wondering, um, in, for the three of you with your research, were there any love stories that were stories about people who missed the opportunity? Like they didn't, you know, they realised later that that was love, but they missed it. Yeah. Um, Nigel, start with you. Um, oh, yeah, thank you very much for the question. I, I think that one of the things that, that does drive me, and again, sorry, Mum, but my... my my parents actually had a terrible marriage. My mother knew that she'd made a mistake before the two weeks before she married my father, and it was it was dreadful. They never slept in the same room. Um, the the relationship went from you know hate to kind of just a standoff, and that was for you know well they didn't get um, divorced until quite late in life. And I I I think that. Both of them, mum, as I mentioned, died two and a half years ago and that did drive a lot of the novel. My father's 94 and he's, he's still kicking. But I think that they've both, both missed love. They, they desperately love their three boys. I'm, I'm the youngest with three sons as well. Um, but I think, I think one of the things that I really wanted Patrick to get to find love is because my, my parents missed out. Hannah? You know, I, so even though the central characters of this book are, are fictionalised, um, I spent a lot of time researching the communities, that, that the old Lutheran communities that are in this book. And um, it was quite hard, actually, to find love at all, let alone miss love. And when I say that, it's not to say that I don't believe there was love there. It's just that it wasn't something that was spoken openly of at all. In fact, I, uh, what I started doing was sort of reading between the lines between the, in the sort of information revealed by the sources I was accessing. So, for instance, you could see the great love a church elder had for his children by the way in which the captain had written about his desperation and anger at the medical doctor on the ships that brought these immigrants over because he believed the doctors had was was a terrible doctor that he had put broken glass into the medicine and you can the captain conveys the grief and the anger of that parent and so of course you can read into the love that they have on a slightly funnier note you hear a child might mention about his parents that they they never embraced he never ever saw them embrace ever not in the private certainly not in public and then yet when i do a little bit more googling i find out they had 16 kids so <laughs> <laughs> you know they must have embraced sometimes <laughs> Um, but so, no, not specifically Love Mist, because that would probably have been the hardest thing to find at all, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I came across so many um, people who would reflect, but I, I just have this real soft spot for 70-year-old men um, who messed up. <laughs> Me I too, went. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you all do. <laughs> oh, man. It's the best. It's the best. Um, but you all do. Um, I, there's this, there was this particular 70-year-old male, 70-ish old male who would come up and say, 
I had this, I had this love and my pride and my, my need to be a certain type of man destroyed it. And if I could go back, I would just freaking so go back to that moment where I screwed all that up. That happened so often out on that corner. It was amazing. And, and like, maybe I've got a soft spot because my old man was one. And I just remember when I was a kid and he'd get on the Terps and he'd, like at about 2 a.m., he'd start singing, and it wasn't like any singing that you're, you've ever heard of. It was whale song, like it was, and it was him going, oh. he couldn't speak, but just sort of, oh. and it was like to mum, it was to my mum, like just, and I knew it, I knew it, and I just, I, I just, that's such a, there's a romance in that, in that melancholy, you know, and I, and I just, I tried to, I think we all need to, honour that, you know, and there's so many of us, you know, so many of the people we know in our lives who weren't lucky enough to have a long-term love, mm. you know, and it's just, we need to wrap our arms around those people because they are often the ones who, sh- who share the most love outwardly. Mm. Um, some of my best friends are single and the, the best of them, I mean, what I'm saying best, the best humans, and they're the ones who always remember Christmas cards, and, you know, because they're just, they know the importance of love because they don't have it. Mm. Yeah. We're out of time. So all three of these authors are going to be signing. Please buy the books. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. You're the best. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. Best event ever. Alex, that's it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session is recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.